Thanks to each and every one of you for being with us today. Whether you're in the room or at home or wherever you might be, take your Bible if you have a copy of one. If not, there's a pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you. And we're in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Only this Sunday and next Sunday remaining in our series in Paul's primary letter, his first letter we believe, and that is his letter to the Galatians. been a good study, and I thank you for your attention, for your many kind words and words of encouragement uh, directed our way. Got a great message. I'm excited about this message today. Y'all excited to hear it? Amen. I'm excited to bring it today because it's a message on a critical operating principle that's indelibly written all throughout every fabric of life, and that is the principle of sowing and reaping. Galatians chapter 6 is where we'll be for a few minutes this morning. It's amazing, speaking of indelibility, uh, of how uh, children's minds are like sponges, right? Uh, I can remember in great detail things that happened 50 years ago, but if you ask me what happened 50 minutes ago, That's another story. A child's mind is incredibly powerful, and it tends to remember for long periods of time things that happen. I remember a couple of images from my childhood that are germane to our topic today. One of them was a symbol I saw in my dentist office when I went to the dentist. It was one dentist and one chair. Y'all remember those days? Not the high-tech kind of places that have dental chairs that look like checkout counters at the Walmart, 25 deep. You know what I mean? One dentist, one chair. And I remember there was one poster in his office that was placed on the ceiling that every child could read when they were kicked back. You know, that was back in the days the dentist didn't even put gloves on. He just put his bare hands all the way down your throat, right? And I remember to this day seeing that sign. And you know what it said? You don't have to floss all your teeth, just the ones you want to keep. I came to hate that sign. I mean, for like 10 years of my early life, till that man retired, I went in there and I knew what was coming because I wasn't always the most faithful guy in flossing teeth. We brushed fairly well, but I don't know about that flossing business. And then I remember one from my elementary days in school in the cafeteria that was a poster that was strategically placed right where the lunch line would back up on the left-hand side of the school cafeteria. And that was a poster that consisted of the five major food groups. Are there still five major food groups that they talk about today? I'm seeing people shrugging their shoulders. Y'all probably don't eat well. You eat like Baptist is what you do, but you don't eat very well. But back in the day, five major food groups. And the caption on that was very clear. Remember it to this day. You are what you eat. That's right. I've never forgotten that. Both of those reminders represent a very powerful truth that we confront today from the pages of God's Word, and it is this simple principle, you reap what you sow. Today we're going to look at that principle along with three applications that the Apostle Paul makes in matters of everyday life and in matters of the spirit life from our text in Galatians 6, beginning in verse 6. Everybody ready to read? Would you say amen this morning? This is the Word of God. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. 
For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as long as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Heavenly Father, would you gracious, uh, grace us with your presence today. May we experience the power of the Holy Spirit of God as He moves and has His being in and through people's lives throughout the room today and all across our region and our country where people may be watching. Teach us, teach us well, that we may live in a way <clears throat> that pleases God and brings honor and glory to His great name. We pray all of this for Christ's sake and in Christ's name, and all God's people said, amen. Now, again, the foundational principle of this wonderful paragraph, it's a very famous paragraph in Paul's letter to the Galatians, is found in the seventh verse, where the great apostles, and I remember memorizing this verse on my little navigator's card many years ago, be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. This is the principle of sowing and reaping, sometimes referred to as the law of use. According to the measure you use, will it be measured back to you? Sometimes it's referred to as the law of reciprocity, give and take, cause and effect. And it is, as John Stott says in his wonderful little book on Galatians, this is a principle of order and consistency which is written into all of life. And everybody in the room knows the principle. I mean, going back to those initial illustrations that we used this morning, if you want to reap healthy teeth and gums, you better sow toothpaste and dental floss. Amen. If you want to reap a healthy body, then you need to go easy on the fat and easy on the calories. If you want to reap wheat, you better sow wheat. And if you want to reap tulips, you better sow tulips in the right soil and at the right time and with the right and proper conditions. And that's not only true, this principle of sowing and reaping in the material world, in the natural realm, in the order of the physical. But the point here that Paul's making is that principle, this law of use, this law of reciprocity, the law of sowing and reaping is just as true and even more important in the moral and in the spiritual realm of life in which we live. Paul begins this statement in verse 7 with an attention getter that's immediately followed by a very sober reminder. The attention getter is the phrase, do not be deceived. That's a stylistic device. It's kind of like when Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you. That's Jesus' way of saying you better listen up. Paul uses another stylistic device in the pastoral epistle, epistles that he only uses there, 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy and Titus, where he introduces an important principle by saying, this is a trustworthy saying. Five times in those three letters, this is a trustworthy saying. That's his way of saying, listen up to what I'm getting ready to say. And the same is true here. Don't be deceived. If I were to begin uh, by making an important statement that said something like this, make no mistake, 
You would know that what I'm getting ready to say, as my children did many years ago when I said, make no mistake that something sober, something vitally important was coming, and that's the case here. Don't be deceived, Paul says. And the sober truth that Paul wants to communicate is simply this, God is not mocked. Now, that word mocked is an interesting word in the Greek New Testament. This is the only place in the whole Bible where that particular word is used. It's a word that's a derivative from the word nose, and it literally means to turn up the nose. You will not turn up your nose at God and get away with it. You know what that means, don't you? When somebody, you say something and somebody does one of those, you just want to reach back and just right upside the head, right? Because you know what they're thinking, right? They're ridiculing you on the inside. But you won't be able to do that with God and God's plan for your life and get away with it. God will not be mocked. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what's known as the Septuagint, this phrase, this word rather, is used 16 times, usually to refer to the kind of attitude, the kind of disposition that the children of Israel had toward the prophets of God. They scorned the prophetic messages coming from the prophets of God. They mocked them. Many of those prophets of God ended up losing their lives because of the message. That's what the word means. The word means to mock or to scorn, to turn up the nose. And God says, or Paul says rather in this passage of Scripture, you won't be able to do that, at least not in the long run. You're not going to be able to get away with that in terms of your relationship to God. What does it mean to mock God? Well, it means to live as you, you just don't have to be accountable for how you live. When you make it up as you go along and you live life your way, you are mocking God. To mock God is to live in such a way that you feel like you can do whatever you want without any consequences whatsoever, that it's your life, you do the agenda setting, you do the planning, you live it your way. It's believing that you can be perfectly happy shaping your life any old way you choose at the expense of God's plan for your life, but to live that way with that kind of disposition and that kind of attitude is a classic example of what it means to mock God. And it's why Paul will later say here in the very next verse, if you sow to the flesh, if you do it your way, you'll end up reaping what? Corruption. You're headed for a train wreck and you need to know it. This is classic cause and consequence, cause and consequence, and you find it all the way through the Bible. I really wish I had more time. I could literally make two or three messages out of this passage of Scripture here this morning. The Bible says the law of use or the law of sowing and reaping is applied in the realm of giving. Jesus said, give, and it will be what? Given to you. That's sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow in terms of generosity, right? The Bible says that's applied to forgiveness at the end of the Lord's Prayer. Our Lord Jesus Christ said, if you want your heavenly Father to forgive you, you better forgive men's trespasses against you, because if you don't forgive their sins, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your sins. You reap what you sow. The Bible applies that to showing mercy to people. James says, mercy without judgment will be shown to the one, or judgment without mercy will be shown to the one who fails to show mercy in this life. You reap what you sow. And here in Galatians 6, Paul makes three additional applications of this wonderful principle as it relates to the people of God. Let me give them to you and write them down this morning if you're a note taker. 
First, you reap what you sow in ministry relationships. In ministry relationships. Paul includes one sentence here in verse number six that reflects the law of sowing and reaping as it relates to the church and its ministers. Look at verse six. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, let's stop there for a moment. Let me remind you, this is every pastor's favorite verse in the whole Word of God right there. Let the one who is taught the Word share all good things with the one who teaches. And if you're looking for things to share with your pastor, I like Krispy Kreme donuts. I like Starbucks gift gift cards. Jackson Steakhouse wouldn't be too bad. Whatever you'd like to share, actually, I'm perfectly content with that. Actually, this is a brief statement that summarizes, obviously, how a congregation is to care for its spiritual leaders. Seems a little bit random here in this passage of Scripture, but I don't think it would have been random at all to the initial readers there in South Galatia, because remember, the false teachers are running rampant. Many people are buying into the message of the Judaizing false teachers, and what does that mean for the pastors of those churches up there that Paul had left behind. They're getting caught in the squeeze, aren't they? And they're probably paying a price because of all of this false teaching. They're getting pushed aside and they're getting left out. And these are the ones that are preaching gospel truth, not the false teachers who all of a sudden found themselves very popular because of their teaching. No, the idea here is that the one who is taught the one who is taught the Word, the one who receives faithful and careful instruction from the Word of God, should share what Paul calls all good things with the one doing the teaching. Now, he doesn't specify what those good things are. It's a very general statement, but it seems like to me anyway, the statement reinforces a principle that Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians made even more clear when he says in 1 Corinthians nine fourteen, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their what? Say it out loud. They're living by the gospel. And that statement in 1 Corinthians 9 reinforces a principle that comes from our Lord Jesus Christ from the 10th chapter of Luke when he sent those 72 gospel preachers out two by two. He sent them out and he makes this critical statement in Luke 10, 7, for the laborer deserves his what? Say it out loud his wages. That's right. Now, the principle here is very simple, namely that ministry is a full-time calling. I mean, it just is. What we do requires a full-time effort, particularly for a church this size. And the Bible teaches that congregations have the responsibility of helping to ensure that the minister is not weighed down by things like financial pressure and financial burdens, because if he's distracted, it's going to start to show in the pulpit. If he's living under tremendous weight of burden, of financial pressure, and things of that nature, it's going to eventually uh, be seen in the manner of his work, and that's to no advantage to the church. But notice that this is not a one-sided deal, because really what this statement communicates is what we might call reciprocal sharing. It's in this paragraph because it's an illustration of sowing and reaping. The pastor puts in his hard work, this hardworking pastor that Paul refers to as a workman who needs not to be ashamed in the second letter to Timothy. So the pastor is to be a workman, a working man. 
who devotes diligent time and effort. I had a person compliment me on a sermon one time, and I just asked her, this was years ago, I said, how long do you think I spent preparing for this message? And she looked at me and she said, oh, a couple of hours times 10. It's two full work days generally, two full work days out of a week to prepare a Sunday morning message, two out of a, of a whole week. And I preach twice a week here at Hillcrest. Y'all see what I'm saying? Man, you got you to gotta dig deep. You've got to put your hand to the plow. And so that's the first thing. The pastor is to be a hardworking man, and it ought to be able to show among his people. That's what he gives to the equation. And then in response to that, the congregation, as the pastor shares the fruits of his labor, the congregation shares the fruit of their physical and material being together with him. The congregation reaps a harvest from the Word of God. The pastor reaps a harvest materially so that he can spend the better part of his time feeding the sheep, leading the sheep over time to greener and greener pastures. It's reciprocal sharing. It's not a one-sided deal. And here's the thing. The Bible teaches that everybody wins when you got it going on in the church. Hillcrest is a great illustration of this, uh, this principle in action. And so let me just say, because I'd be remiss if I didn't stop right here and say, from the heart of all of your pastors directly to you, we thank God for you. We thank God that over the course of nearly 70 years of ministry, listen, Hillcrest has only had five pastors in 70 years. And a big part of that is because Hillcrest has always understood this principle and always taken care of their shepherds. So know that you're loved and you're valued and you're appreciated from all of our pastors and all of our ministry staff. God bless each and every one of you. You reap what you sow in ministry relationships. But then Paul goes on to say you reap what you sow in personal behavior. Personal behavior. Paul moves from the church and its ministers to the church and its morality. Look with me at verse number 8. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, this is a, a contrast that Paul's already made all the way throughout chapter 5. And so what Paul does here is really for the final time, goes back to this comparison contrast between living according to the flesh and living according to the Spirit. Now, living according to the Spirit, everybody understands that's the Holy Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit when we're saved. We are then led by the Holy Spirit for right living. We're prompted by the Holy Spirit. We're guided by the Holy Spirit. We're to walk by the Spirit. We're to live by the Spirit. We're to be controlled by the Spirit. Paul's alluded to all of that in what he's already written here in Galatians. And now he couches this concept of either living by the Spirit or living by what he calls the flesh. And by the flesh, he's talking about our sinful nature, the old you that you used to be before you were indwelled by the Spirit of God, before you were saved, before Christ moved into your life, that old you, that fleshly you. So he's using the word flesh in a spiritual sense primarily. And he couches it here in terms of sowing and reaping now. He mentions two kinds of sowers, 
those who sow according to the flesh and those who sow according to the Spirit. And then he mentions two different kinds of harvests as a result of that. Those who reap what he calls destruction or corruption and those who reap what he calls eternal life. Now, I don't need to do a whole big word study here to understand I'd rather have life than to have corruption. So I already know there's an advantage to living by the Holy Spirit of God rather than by the flesh. But that being said, let's talk about that for just a couple of minutes. What does it mean to sow according to the flesh? Or to use Paul's language here, according to one's own flesh, your flesh. He's being very personal here. He wants people to think about their own life. What does it mean to sow according to your flesh? Well, it's to make your own plans. It's to establish your own agenda. It's to take out that tick list with the boxes, you know, like a to-do list that you can buy on a a pad that's like down on my office. I've got one. I make one every day. But it's like making one of those tick lists for yourself and putting all of your plans on it and then ripping it off and handing it to God and say, hey, here you go. Let's do it like this. That's living according to the flesh. You make your own plans. Set your own agenda. Determine your own way, your own path forward. That's the way most people live. That's the way most people in the world live. Why? Because most people don't have a relationship with God. Most people live according to the flesh because most people are lost spiritually. They're unsaved. They've not been regenerated by the Spirit of God. And it explains, in large part, why the world is in the mess that it is. We make the rules up from our gut, and then we apply them to every realm of life. We make the rules up, we apply them to our marriage. We make the rules up, we apply them to how we raise our children. We make the rules up, we apply them to the political system and to the people that we choose to support politically. I'm just saying you reap what you sow. We make the rules up and we apply them to our relationships, to our friendships. We apply them to our financial decisions. And what do we reap as a result of sowing to our own flesh? Divorce, marital and relational separation, redefined marriages, confused disrespectful, uneducated children, virtually no savings in our bank accounts after 20, 25, 30 years of working. The average American, the average American, 50% of all American adults do not have $1,000 saved to their name. You reap what you sow. And the Bible says those who sow according to the flesh reap corruption, a word that basically means destruction, ruin, and it can even mean death, which sometimes happens, even this side of heaven when you sow to the flesh. But the principle is exactly the same on the other side of the equation. Because if you follow Paul's progression in Galatians again, he speaks first of all about those who receive the Spirit, and then he says those who have received the Spirit are led by the Spirit, 
And those who are led by the Spirit are to live by the Spirit. And those who live by the Spirit are to walk by the Spirit. And those who walk by the Spirit are the ones who are controlled by the Spirit. And now he uses a different phraseology. All of those people, those who receive the Spirit, live by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, are now the ones who are to sow according to the Spirit. And what that means is that you live your life with a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. To sow to the Spirit is basically to walk by the Spirit. The two phrases mean exactly the same thing. You've got the Spirit within you, and if you're saved, if you've trusted Jesus Christ to save you, and again, I ask the question, who in the room has trusted Christ to save them? Would you shout amen this morning? Then you have the Holy Spirit of God, and the Holy Spirit will lead you in the pathway of righteousness. The question is, are you going to follow those promptings? Are you going to listen to the Holy Spirit? Listening to the Holy Spirit and following the Holy Spirit and saying yes to the Holy Spirit is how you sow to the Spirit. You make decisions that honor God. You make decisions that please the Lord. The Apostle Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So we make it our goal to please Him while we're in the body or away from it. And so I make decisions that please the Lord in my marriage. I attended a wedding yesterday. I didn't have to do it. You know what I did at that wedding? I sat on the back row like a good Baptist. I don't think I've ever been to a wedding set on the back row. I kind of liked it actually, all of you in the back this morning. Pastor Dustin Scott did that wedding, and he said, this wedding is not so much about you guys as it is about the Lord. The purpose of this marriage has little to do with the two of you. It has everything to do with the two of you together honoring him. And I wanted to applaud when he said, that's exactly right. You please the Lord in your marriage. You please the Lord in your parenting. You all know that the Bible's got some things to say about how to raise children, train up a child in the way he should go, so that when he's old, he will not depart from it. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, but raise them in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. When you do that, you sow to the Spirit. You make decisions that please the Lord in your financial stewardship. Give, and it will be given to you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house. And then God says, that's how you sow. What's the reaping? See if I will not throw open the windows of heaven so that there will not be poured out to you a blessing such that you can't even contain it. You reap what you sow. And when you make decisions about your marriage and about parenting and about your spiritual life and about your friendships and your financial stewardship, when you make decisions that are designed to please the Lord, you are sowing to the Spirit. And what's the harvest? Life. Not corruption, not destruction, not death. Ionios zoe, eternal life. That's a good exchange, in my humble opinion. Now, somebody would say, well, wait a minute. I, I know people that have done well their whole life. They've made wise decisions, and they've just struggled their whole life. Are y'all listening? Say amen. There's not always a direct cause and effect this side of heaven. There are some people, and the Bible's filled with examples of this, 
who live according to the flesh. They sow according to the flesh, and they, everything they touch turns to gold. Y'all ever known people like that? I mean, they seem to be anti-God with every decision that they make, but yet they materially prospered. You know what I say in response to that? God is not mocked. Just because God doesn't balance the books every day doesn't mean God isn't keeping a record. And there will come a day. The Bible says each will have to carry his own load. That's a reference to what happens when this life is over, and it's just you and the Lord. And so while there may seem to be a bit of inequity sometimes this side of heaven, at least in terms of the physical and financial blessings of life, let me just say that eternity is a whole lot longer than 50 or 60 or 70 years on planet earth. And there'll come a time where we'll stand before God, for it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may give an account for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Each will carry his own load. But be it now or later, be it in the present day or at the judgment, we all will reap what we sow. And Paul's already given us a formula for success. The only way to produce a harvest of holiness, one, I tell you, even before I get to what I'm getting ready to say, you better know Jesus is your Savior and Lord. There is no success apart from Jesus Christ. And so reaping what you sow in terms of life begins with knowing Jesus. But once you've trusted Jesus to save you, then you've got to make a decision to walk by the Spirit of God positively and to crucify the flesh daily. Those are decisions that you make every day of your life. And so purposefully pray every morning when you swing those size 12 brogans out of the bed and place them firmly for the first time in the morning on terra futa before you ever get out of the bed in the morning. It's a good spiritual disciplinary practice to say, Lord, Today's a brand new day. It's a gift from God, and I'm laying my body on the altar of sacrifice. I am not my own. I belong to you. Help me to live this day in such a way that life is not about me. I crucify the flesh by the Spirit of God. I resist the devil and claim the promise that he will flee from me, and I want my life to matter, not for my own sake. I want it to matter for the glory of Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is how we begin every day of life if we know Jesus Christ, or at least it should be. Every person either sows to the flesh or they sow to the Spirit. And the way we sow to the Spirit is by making sure we every day walk by the Spirit of God. Y'all with me so far? Amen. We reap what we sow in our ministry relationships. We reap what we sow in personal morality and personal decision-making. And then finally, we reap what we sow in community service. This component of sowing and reaping highlights the church and its mission, the church and its ministers, the church and its morality, the church and its mission, and it's verses 9 and 10. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. 
So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let me give you four components of that. This, this is a whole, verses 9 and 10 is a whole sermon in and of itself. So I've got to give you the Reader's Digest condensed version. Anytime I have four subpoints on point number three, you know that point number three could be its own sermon. Amen. And I barely have time just to give you the points this morning. But first of all, notice there's a call to do good. All of this related to the doctrine of sowing and reaping. A call to do good on the part of God's people. And it's stated twice, once positively and once negatively. In verse 10, Paul says, let us do good. And then in verse 9, on the negative end, he says, let us not grow weary in doing good. Let us do good. Let us not grow weary of doing good. And it's interesting that both of the uses of the word good there are two different Greek words. They're not the same Greek word. And there's a shade of difference between the two. The first one, the one that's used in verse 9, carries this idea of doing the right thing. You could translate the passage, let us not grow weary of doing what's right. Doing what's right. Just do the right thing. God's people ought never tire of doing the right thing. And how do you know what the right thing is? Right here, brothers and sisters, right here. This book will tell you everything you need to know about how to do what's right and what is the very definition of what's right. Doing the right thing means knowing the Word of God and following the promptings of the Spirit of God as you make everyday decisions in life. Let us not grow weary of doing the right thing, but to do the right thing, you've got to know the Word of God and you've got to follow the promptings of the Spirit of God. The other word that's translated good in verse 10 is a word, we get our English name Agatha from it, as in Agatha Christie. It's the Greek word agathos. And it's, it's a word that means good, but it's, it's more of a generous, it's, it's, it errs on the side of generosity. One errs on the side of doing right, do the right thing. The second use of the word good, do the generous thing. You put them together, this is a call for God's people to be consistent and to never grow weary of doing the right thing in a generous way. That's the calling here. This is what God is watching us as we live. He's evaluating us according to this very principle. I, am I doing the right thing in a generous way? And why does God want us to do that? Because we're spirit people. We're not fleshly people. We're spirit people. And we know that the fruit of the spirit is what? Goodness. Doing the right thing in a generous way. That's the call to do good. And then Paul moves from that to the object of our good, which is made clear in verse 10. Let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do good to everyone, especially those who are part of the family of God. And indeed, community service ought to be done to everybody, to the whole community, the broader community, to the lost as well as the saved. But the Bible says here there's a special urgency when it comes to doing the right thing in a generous way to Christian brothers and sisters. How many have heard the statement, charity begins at home? I mean, there would be something wrong if I was running all around the community, paying attention to everybody's needs, but my kids didn't have a proper meal to eat at home. 
you probably wouldn't keep me around very long if that was the case. No, charity begins at home, and it's true in the family of God as well. We ought to meet the needs of the larger community, but not at the expense of meeting needs within the family of faith. That being said, we are to do good to all people, even those, as Jesus said, who persecute us and those who spitefully use us, those who we would define perhaps as enemies against us, the call to do good, the object of our good, and then there's the motivation for doing good. Verse 9, in due season, say that together with me, in due season, we will reap. May not be today, may not be tomorrow, but there's coming the day where we'll all reap what we sow. Doing the right thing in a generous way toward others is like sowing seeds, like a farmer casting the seed. And if we stick to the work until it's finished, if we get the whole field sown, and if we keep the whole field weeded, and if we keep the whole field watered, if we stick to it, there will one day come a harvest. Paul doesn't actually specify what that harvest actually looks like. He doesn't tell us everything about what it actually is. But there's no question there is a near-term harvest as we sow, and there is a long-term reaping as we sow. In the near term, what do you do when you do good to everyone, especially to those who have the household of faith? Well, you minister to sick people and you bring a measure of relief to them. That's reaping a harvest. When you comfort the afflicted, when you bring relief to somebody that's oppressed because of some form of brokenness in their life, you reap what you sow. When you do good to all people, you bring a smile to their face by ministering to them or spending time with them or just having a pleasant conversation with them. You bring joy to the heavy-hearted. And when that happens, you've reaped what you've sown. Most importantly, when you share the gospel with somebody, that's the ultimate good that you can do in their life. (laughs) You, You sow the seed of the gospel by getting to know them and by doing kind things and by eventually getting around to having what we call a gospel conversation with them and telling them what's most important in life. And sometimes that person will respond and they'll be saved. And because of your faithfulness in sowing the seed of God's word into their life, you will have reaped what you have sown. That's the near term. But then there's a harvest that's going to be reaped also at the judgment. We've made that clear already. There's a harvest that'll be reaped for the people of God who've made it their mission in life to do the right thing in a generous way to all people, especially to those in the household of faith. For those who've kept their hand to the plow, sowing the goodness of Christ in due season. On that great day, on the day where we either die this side of heaven or we're surprised one day to see the Lord Jesus splitting the eastern sky and coming to where we are. Either way, on that great day, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. If we keep on doing a generous thing in a generous way, or the right thing in a generous way, all throughout our journey with the Lord, 
not growing weary, keeping that hand to the plow, will reap when it really counts. But be careful to notice the qualification for doing good. Let us not grow weary of doing good. Verse 10, we will reap if we do not what? Say it out loud. If we do not give up. That's right. Grow weary, give up. Those are two things expressed in the negative, which means, of course, you don't want to do either one of those. Growing weary and giving up, very closely related. They're cousins in the Greek New Testament. And you know why? Because is it not true that it's usually at the point when you're either at or near exhaustion that you throw in the towel? And there's probably a huge blessing just around the corner. Anytime you throw in the towel, I can just almost say exclusively from a biblical perspective, you've thrown it in too early. And I know it's tough. I mean, can I ask you this morning, do you ever, y'all ever just get tired? You just get tired? Tired of the struggle? Tired of the battles? Tired of the brokenness? Tired of the frustration? Does life ever seem to you as it does to me like you're constantly running uphill at a 60-degree angle? Sometimes you just get tired of that. But let me tell you what this book consistently says. One thing you can't do is quit. You can't quit. And you know why you can't quit? Because it's only when you quit that you become a failure. Failure is never final in the kingdom. It's okay to fail in the kingdom. And you're never a failure in the kingdom of God when you fail. But you are a failure if you quit. But you can't quit. We will reap a harvest in due season if we do not give up. Hebrews 12, 1, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us what? Say it out loud. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And that's what true believers do right there. You know how you tell a true believer from a false believer? The true believer keeps running. The false believer quits before the finish line. That's how you tell the difference. One keeps doing gospel good. One keeps doing the right thing in a generous way until they are standing in the presence of Jesus Christ. The false believer, those who have lip service only faith, will quit before the finish line. One keeps their hand to the plow until the very end. The other fizzles before the finish. They grow weary. And they give up. The good news is, because we are spirit people who possess the Spirit of God, we never do life alone. Amen. This is why God gives us the gift of the Spirit, who the Bible says is our comforter, our helper, our supporter, our encourager. And the only way I know to keep from giving up in the flesh is to do what the Bible says here in Paul's letter to the Galatians, and to consistently, daily walk by the Spirit of God.
Paul's been talking about Christian freedom all throughout chapters 5 and 6. And one thing we've learned about Christian freedom is that it's an incredible gift, but it's not a freedom to do life your way. God has set you free, but he's set you free to do life his way, not your way. So freedom is not the freedom to live as you please or do what you want. Freedom always means responsibility, and whether it concerns Christian ministry or Christian morality or Christian mission, we ought never forget the operating principle that we've learned today that's embedded in every single part of the fabric of your life physically, emotionally, and spiritually, most importantly, spiritually. Never forget it because it's true now and it will always be true. We will carry it with us all the way into eternity. So never forget it. You reap what you sow. This is God's Word, and all God's people said, Amen.